You guys make your way back to your seat. And as you do, um, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 86. Psalm 86 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we were there last weekend as well, taking a look at, these last week and this week, taking a look at what happens when we get a big picture of God, a big vision of God in our lives, and the changes that begin to unfold from that. Um, this week, we, we want to take a look at the fact that what really needs to change for us, see most of us when we think about change that needs to take place in our lives, we think about it at the level of changing how we live. We think about changing at the level of our, our ways of living. Really, if there's to be real change in our lives, see our biggest problem isn't necessarily how we live or the way that we live. Our biggest problem, my biggest problem, your biggest problem is what we're living for and what we're living from. See, how we're living is only a symptom of a greater sickness. It's kind of like, you know, the cough or the runny nose that you get whenever you have an infection in your body. It's just a symptom of a deeper sickness, of a deeper infection. How we're living is a symptom of what we're living for and what we're living from. And so in the text this morning, that's what we want to take a look at this morning, at how whenever those things change, whenever we, there's a change at what we're living for and what we're living from, the, the, the how we're living follows after that. Does that make sense? And so in Psalm 86, we'll begin in verse uh, 8 and read down through verse 13 together. If you don't have a copy with you, it'll be on the screen for you to follow along. In Psalm 86, beginning in verse 8, David is, writes these words. He says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. There are no works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come before you, O Lord, and worship you and glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of of Sheol. And what I, what I want us to see in this psalm this morning is that those two things, when what you're living for and what you're living from changes, then the way that you're living changes as well. And it's actually sustainable and continued change in your life at that point. And so let's dig into the first thing. What we're living for shapes the way that we live. It's one of the things we learn from this psalm. What we're living for shapes the way that we live. Listen, some of you are so geeked up right now, right, because you're outdoorsmen, and hunting season is knocking on your door, okay? It's like peeking through your window and through your peephole, and, or, or you're peeking out the peephole and seeing, like, hunting season's just around the corner, and Bass Pro Shop just had their annual hunting sale, and you're over there stocking up on all kinds of stuff, right? All this stuff that'll make you stink, right, to, like, mask your smells. You got, like, styrofoam deer set up in the backyard, and you let your hedges grow up a little bit, and you're hiding behind your hedges with a bow in your hand, and you got, like, stripes painted on your face, and you're all decked out in real tree camo with a little bit of orange so your neighbor can see you across the privacy fence, right, and you're decked out back there, and you're taking aim at that styrofoam deer, Right, well, because you're trying to practice and you want to hone your aim. And here's why. Because generally, as you look through the scope of a rifle, as you look down the end of an arrow, what you're aiming at, generally what you're aiming at, is what you're hitting. Where your aim is headed is what you're going to hit. And that's, that's, that's a principle that's true in all of life. And in this text right here, David says, what I'm aiming at what I'm aiming at with my life is the glory of God. No matter how hard things are, 
no matter how high I might be on a mountaintop or how deep I may be in a valley, what I'm aiming at with my life is the glory of God. I'm living for God's glory. That's what David says. Because there's basically two things that you can live for, two, two glories you can live for. You can live for your own glory or you can live for God's glory. And David says in verse 12, I want you to hear this. He says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. David says, when I look through the scope of my rifle, I look down the end of my arrow, what, that, what I'm aiming at, the bull's eye for my life, is that my life, whether I'm on the peak of a mountain or the bottom of a valley, will be about the glory of God. It will be about bringing Him glory, glorifying Him. Now, there's the, the, you might stop and ask yourself the question, like, where's David at right now? Think about David's situation. It hasn't changed since last week, if you were with us. It hadn't changed. He's still in the same place. He's probably running from cave to cave and city to city, fleeing Saul, who's the jealous king of Israel on the throne, who's seeking to take David's life because David is the anointed king who would take Saul's place one day. And Saul's jealousy has risen to such a point that he's trying to take David out. And so he pursues him and chases him down, sends men after him. Verse 14 says, insolent men are after me. They seek my life. So here's David in the midst of one of the, perhaps the, the deepest valleys of his life. And yet even in that deepest valley, he looks up and he says, God, I want in this valley right now to glorify you. My aim is to glorify you. And you and I, when we think about glorifying God, there's, there's, when we think about glorifying God, we kind of try and get our minds around what that looks like. Right? Because you and I don't make God glorious. Right? We don't make God anything. He just is. Right? What we do is we show him to be glorious. We show him to be glorious. In the same way that a camera, right? I, Karen and I were driving to dinner last night over at Firewheel, driving up 190. Um, and I don't know if you were outside about 7.15 last night, but whenever the this, this clouds kind of began to break and roll off a little bit, and the sun began to set, if you lifted your eyes to the western horizon, what you saw was a beautiful, glorious sunset. Right, filled with all kinds of hues and bright whites as the sun was just behind the clouds, but it was lighting up everything along the horizon. There was deep, rich blues and glorious, like almost eye-piercing white stripes of clouds in the sky. Now, you've seen sunsets like that before, or sunsets that are filled with orange and purple. Right? You see the sun setting. Listen, when you lay your eyes on that sun setting or the sun rising or any other beautiful thing in the creation, a camera, if I'd have stopped and pulled over and taken my phone out and taken a picture with my iPhone, right? or even with a $17,000 Nikon with like telephoto lens and everything else, the camera doesn't make the sunset beautiful. It merely captures the beauty of the sunset. The same is true about you and I. We don't make God glorious, but by our lives we can show Him to be so. And one of the ways that we do that is by clinging to God, no matter how high of a mountain top that we are on and not trusting in how good things are in our lives in a particular season, and no matter how deep in the valley we are clinging to Him and showing that He is our source of strength, that He is our source of security, no matter what's falling apart around us. When we show Him to be our treasure, that we're clinging to Him in the deepest, deepest pain that we might experience or in the greatest pleasure that we might enjoy. When we're clinging to God in both of those seasons, we're showing Him to be glorious, 
showing him to be valuable, showing him to be mighty, showing him to be worthy, showing him to be of great significance and of the, the, the most secure substance. We're showing him to be so. And David said, that's what I'm aiming at. So when I look through the, through the scope, when I look down the arrow, that's the aim for my life, no matter where I find myself. And listen, what you're living for changes the way you live. It shapes the way that you live. And you will find that if you begin to live for the glory of God, you'll find that it suits you because it's what you were created for. Do you know that? Do you know that that's what you were created for? Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, he says this. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. In other words, everything comes from God. Everything is sustained by God. And ultimately, the end of everything where it's returning is back to God. So everything, including you and I, we come from him. We have life in him and through him. And we're returning back to him. And as Paul thinks about that, he says this. He says, To whom God be the glory forever and ever. So you and I come from him. You and I live through him. You and I are returning to him. And the aim of our life now, why you were created, is to bring this great God from whom you come, through whom you live, and to whom you are returning to bring him glory. To show him to be glorious. That's the aim of your life. And you'll find that if you begin to adopt that aim for your life, that no matter how high you are, how low you are, what you're aiming for is not a change in your circumstances, but you're aiming in your circumstances for the glory of God, then changing what you're living for begins to change how you're living and changes the way that you live. Now, I find it so interesting that what David says in verse 12, it flows out of a big view of God in verses 8 and 9. A big view of God in verses 8 and 9. And I think what David, what, what, it's, it's so crazy to me. Because David's on his knees crying out before God. God, would you listen to my prayer in verse 1? I am so desperate for you. Would you preserve my life? People are trying to kill me, God. Would you show up? And what God does, it would seem in David's prayers, he, he doesn't change David's circumstances, but he lifts his eyes in his circumstances to get a big picture of God. And what David begins to see is that what God is doing is bigger than him. It's bigger than him. And so what you, one of the things that you and I need if we're going to like, change the aim like change the bullseye that we're aiming for with our lives, that we want to live for the glory of God, show him to be glorious... One of the things that you and I need to get a glimpse of is a a glimpse of the global mission of God. That what God is doing is bigger than me. What God is doing is bigger than you. You need to get a glimpse of the global mission of God. Look at what David said in verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, he says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. All the nations that you have made, God. Last week we saw the fact that God, all his works, there was no one like him in his works. There's everything that he's created, right? All the, the, the stars and the planets and the galaxies and the universe and the solar systems, all from the, from the most immense and big things out there to the most intricate and small things in here. That God has created them, he conceived of them, but he's not contained by them. That's how big he is. But David goes one step further to say that God is so glorious. He's so glorious 
that not only cannot all of creation contain him, but his praise must be declared in its fullness by every nation. Every nation. That's what he says in verse 9. All the nations you have made, God, shall come and worship you and glorify your name. The word nations in the Bible literally means this. It means peoples. It means peoples. And it means like groups of people, nationalities, ethnicities, tribes, tongues, languages. A a people group in the Bible or nations in the Bible or or groups are categorized sometimes by geography where they live, sometimes by cultures and customs, the language that they speak, kind of their ancestry and where they've come from. There's people groups that are scattered all throughout the globe. And whenever the Bible refers to nations, oftentimes it's referring to peoples, these groups of people. And David is saying this, he says, there are all kinds of people from all kinds of places who will come and worship God. Because he has made them. And this is, listen, this is a night and day difference. This is why David says, there's none like you, God. There's no one like you. There's no one who compares to you. There's no equal for you. There's no rival for you. There's none like you, God. Because all the gods of the other nations were so different than this God. Because the gods of the other nations in the Bible were just that. They were the gods of those nations. The gods of those peoples. And so if you go back into history and you read about the Egyptian pantheon, a collection of Egyptian gods, at the top of that pyramid was Ra, until he got killed by Osiris and he got to the top. There's all this competition between the gods. So you had the Egyptian gods whom they would worship and they would serve. They would receive blessing from and they would receive judgment from. Or you had the Assyrian gods. At the top of the Assyrian pantheon or collection was Asher. And he ruled over all the lesser gods. And the Assyrians worshipped those gods, sought blessing, received judgment. The Babylonians had their gods. All the ancient peoples had their gods. And those gods were worshipped in those places by those peoples. But what David says here, he says, there's none like you among them, God. Because all those nations are going to one day gather to bring you glory, to declare your praise, and to worship you because you made them. You you see, the, the gods of the other nations in the Bible, right, they were, they were the gods of these, these locations, these locales, these peoples. Almost kind of like every major market has its sports franchises. Right? Now listen, I grew up in South Louisiana, uh, southwest Louisiana to be exact, Lake Charles. Right? 30 minutes from Texas, 30 minutes from the Gulf. And growing up in, te- in, in southwest Louisiana, I, had, I was a fan of three football teams. I was a fan of the LSU Tigers. I was a fan of the New Orleans Saints. And a fan of any team that took the field against the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> and then God, in his, in his humor, sent me into exile into Dallas. <laughs> and I figured, I've got to plant fields and grow crops and give my daughters in marriage, like God says to Jeremiah and as he sends them into Babylonian captivity. Right, that's what I've got to do here. So I've got to make a life here. But listen, I was a fan of those franchises. Why? I was a fan of the Houston Astros as well because they were like two hours from me. They were part of that region. And I used to, used to be a fan of the Astros and the Rangers until somebody decided to put them both in the same league and the same division. It just kind of messed me all up. But every, every, every major market has its sports franchises, and they go to the stadiums, and they cheer for their teams. That's kind of how the gods of the other nations were in the ancient world, of these particular places, of these particular people. But in the grand stadium of human history, what God is doing is He's gathering people who wear blue hats with white stars, few of them 
And he's gathering people who wear green hats with white eagles. And he's gathering even a handful of folks who wear black hats with gold fleur-de-lis on the front. Right? He's gathering people who tailgate on Saturdays with Hook'em Horns t-shirts on and Gig'em Aggies t-shirts on. Right? And Sick'em Bears t-shirts on. And because he is so gracious and so loving and compassionate, he's even probably gathering a few Boomer Sooners. <laughs> God is gathering people from all across Every dividing line you can imagine to come and worship his name because he has made them. Do you have a picture of a God like that who is on a global mission? See, in the, what David begins to see here is that in the end, he, begins, he gets a glimpse into the future of what John sees in Revelation chapter 7 whenever he sees Jesus on the throne and he sees every tribe, every tongue, every nationality, every language gathered around the throne giving praise and honor and glory to the Lamb who was slain. And David says, all the nations shall come and worship you because you have made them. So in the end, there will be people from all across our nation, from the east coast to the west coast. From the, from, the, from the southern plains to the deep south to the Midwest, there will be folks there in heaven around the throne who've grown up on the block in the inner city, folks who have lived all their lives in the burbs, and even some of you guys who live in secure bunkers out in the country. I know, I know who you are. Right? All walks of life. You have folks there who homeschool, folks there who private school, folks there who public school, their kids. Folks there with, with brown skin, with black skin, with tan skin, with white skin. Folks who come from all different walks and backgrounds of life gathered around the throne of God to give Him glory because He has made them. But not only that, you'll have folks from all across the globe who will be there. All across the globe. You'll have individuals and peoples from every corner of the world, from the Naguki people of South Africa, and from among the Dolgan people in northern Russia. You have folks from the Zimba people in the Democratic Republic of Congo to the Oromo people in Kenya and Ethiopia, from among the Bodo in India to the Oromo people in Indonesia, from the Icelandic individuals in the northern Atlantic all the way down to the Tuxa people of Brazil. You'll have folks from among the Crimean Tatar people who live in the southern Ukraine to the Warani people in Ecuador, from the Nyunga people of southern Australia to the Eskimos of Alaska, all the nations of the earth will one day come and bow before God and give worship to Him, for He has made them. Listen, is that how you see God? Because when David says, I will glorify your name forever, it is flowing out of this vision that what God is doing is bigger than him. It's bigger than him. And what will be a feast then, we have a foretaste of now in the church. Now, now I'll really get excited. We have a foretaste now in the church. We saw a couple of, several months back in 1 Peter chapter 2 of how God's built, he sees the church as a building, and he's building this building on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and he's building it with these living stones, you and I, that he's setting in place. And in verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says that you, church, you building that God is constructing are a chosen race. Right now in the church, 
The church should be a, peoples from, a people from among all peoples, a kind from among all kinds. Is that, is that the vision that you have of what God is doing? Because if it is, even whenever you're in the deepest pit of despair, and you step back and see that what God is doing is much bigger than you, then you pull the bow back and you aim for the bullseye of the glory of God. And when you change what you're living for, it changes the way you are living. See, if we're only aiming at changing the way that we're living, we're not getting deep enough. What are you living for? Second of all, second of all, because it's not enough just to change what you're living for. There's been many people throughout human history and church history who've tried to change what they're living for and what they've really embraced and adopted is just a form of legalism. Right, because they said, I was created for the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six tells me so. so. I'm gonna go live for the glory of God. It's my duty, I'm gonna do it. Right, if I'm gonna be a good Christian in everybody else's eyes, I've gotta live for the glory of God. I've just gotta get her done. It's kind of been our mentality sometimes. We just end up embracing another form of legalism. But listen, that is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. If you're here this morning, and that's what you have heard, and that's what you have experienced, or that's what you've embraced with your life, I want you to know, I want you to know that what you have embraced and what you have encountered is not Christianity. Because Christianity is not just a change in what you are living for, but it's also a change in what you are living from. In what you are living from. Listen, there's two basic foundations from which you can live. Right? You can live off the foundation of guilt because you feel like you're unlovable and if you just do enough and perform well enough, then God would accept you and God would receive you and God would love you. That your performance will make you lovable in the eyes of God. And so you live off a foundation of guilt. Or you can live off the foundation of gratitude. The foundation of gratitude. Which overflows from an experience of the love of God. So you can either live for God to love you. If you perform well enough, do all the right things, cross off, check all the boxes, cross off all the T's and dot all the I's. Or you can live from an experience of God's love. And that's what David is doing here. That's what David is doing here. I want you to notice in verse 13, the first word in verse 13 is a small preposition. It's the word for, F-O-R. And when you see that word for show up in the Bible, oftentimes it indicates a reason for what's just been stated a reason for what's just been stated. And David said, I will glorify your name forever. That's, the, that's what I'm aiming at. But then he comes to say in verse 13, for, let me give you the reason I'm going to glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David says this. He says, the reason I'm aiming now for the glory of God, I'm living for his glory, is because I'm living from his love. You see that? living for his glory, and here's why, here's the reason. It flows out of this big view of what God's doing across the globe, but it's flowing out of and from his love, my personal encounter with the love of God in my life. And listen, last week I tried to help you understand, help us understand what the steadfast love of God looks like through Liam Neeson and Nemo's daddy in Finding Nemo, right? This, 
This week I want us to get a, a, a picture of the scope of God's love, the, the, the extent of God's love. Because David says it's great. And there's lots of ways that it could be great, but one of the ways that it's great is it's great in its extent. It's expanse. In fact, as some of the hymn writers, one of my favorite hymns, it's written by a guy named Frederick Lehman. It's called The Love of God. And listen to what he says as he writes about the expansiveness of God's love. He writes these words. He said, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. In other words, there's not enough words to describe it. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hill, hell. Right? As high as you can possibly conceive of and as low as you can possibly conceive of. He says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is what he's saying. If every body of water on the face of the earth was filled with ink, and if every stick, branch, or piece of brush were a pen, and you were to dip that pen in the ink, and every person who has ever lived is living now or will ever live was a scribe, someone whose job was to write stuff then you would drain every drop of every body of water on the face of the earth to write the love of God. And if the scroll was the sky from east to west and stretched as far across the horizon as you can imagine, he said, nor could that scroll, the biggest one you could conceive of, could it contain the exhaustive breadth and extent of God's love. David says, for great is his steadfast love. It's expansive. It's exhaustive. You can't outrun it. You can't outlive it. You can't get away from it. That's how big it is. And David is enveloped by it. But Laman doesn't stop there because in another part of the first verse he says this. He talks about how God's love, I'm sure David had experienced God's love in all kinds of ways, but he talks about the, the main way God has demonstrated his love to us. And this is what he says. The guilty pair, speaking of Adam and Eve, bowed down with care, and God gave his son to win. His erring child, he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. That the greatest demonstration of God's love in human history is what John writes about in 1 John chapter 4. When he says, this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is that? That's a, that's a big like 17 cent theological word, right? What does propitiation mean? That what God has done in Jesus is he has absorbed and turned aside God's just anger and wrath against our sin. That Jesus has become the lamb that was slain in our place to take God's just anger and wrath against our sin. That's the greatest 
In fact, that's what John says in verse 9 of 1 John 4. And this, the love of God was shown, made manifest to us. This is how we saw it, that he sent his son. He sent his son to do what? To absorb God's wrath against our sin and turn it aside so that we would not taste of the wrath of God, but only of the love of God and his discipline to wake us up and correct us and put us back on the right path. But listen, it's not enough. It's not enough just to see the expanse of God's love. Because you can have a category for, in your mind for God being really loving. But until you know that Jesus not only died, but he died for you, it's, it's not, it, it won't change you. See, not only do you need a picture or a glimpse of the global mission of God, but you also need a taste of the personal love of God. Look at what David says again in verse 13. For great, expansive is your steadfast love. To who? All those folks out there? Is that, what, is that what he says? What does he say? Two little letters, right? To me. For you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, from the place of the dead. See, what you and I need is not only a category in our minds that God is loving, but we need a taste We need a personal taste of the love of God on our tongues. Right, some of you know that, right, a a, a medium steak from a great, like, Chamberlain steak and chops over there in Addison. You know a medium steak, man, you you can get a a sense and have a category in your mind that it tastes good. But until you sit down at the restaurant table and you cut into it and there's a little bit of red flowing out. I just grossed some of you out, I know. Some of you are salivating right now, though. You cut into that thing and then you take a bite and you taste it. There's a difference between those two, isn't there? There's a difference between knowing something tastes good and having the experience of it on your tongue. And you can know that God is loving all day long, but until you taste of his love, you will always live from the foundation of guilt because you will think, I've got to earn God's love. And the good news this morning for you is this, is that if you've never tasted of it personally or it's been a long time and you've fallen back into those old patterns of living out of guilt instead of gratitude, that God, God can give you a taste this morning. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter five. He says that the Holy Spirit of God has been poured into our hearts, or the love of God, I'm sorry, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit gets poured, the very person of God gets poured into our hearts. And in so doing, the love of God floods our souls. And we get a taste of it. The Holy Spirit's able to make you taste that today. And that's good news. Because when you get a taste of the love of God on your your tongue, and you pull back the bow and you aim for the glory of God from the love of God, everything begins to change in your life. Everything begins to change. And listen, I just want to go ahead and make a confession. I have not done well at living from the love of God this week. Because when you live from the love of God, there's a graciousness about your demeanor. (laughs) There's a patience with your kids and with other adults. (laughs) Listen, I was was at Meet the Teacher um, for my daughter on Thursday evening. And I was standing there and we went around, put all our supplies in all her little bins, and got everything squared away and ready for her. And I'm standing there, 
and waiting to talk to her teacher about her allergy issues and her, you know, her, her EpiPens and all the action plans and all that kind of stuff. And I'm standing and waiting, and there's all these families that are following through before us and just waiting and waiting and waiting. My kids are starting to like tear the cubbies apart, like the doors are coming off, and they're running around tackling each other on the floor. And so like, I'm starting to feel it a little bit. You guys know what I'm talking about. Right? And so I'm standing there, and this, this, I'm standing there waiting, and, and the, 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 the folks who were talking to my daughter's teacher walk off, and this, this, this sweet woman, um, who must not have seen me waiting right there to, to talk to her, just kind of walks, blows right past me, and walks up to her and says, I want to get a picture with my, my son. And so at that moment, my daughter runs over, because I told her we would get a picture with her as well, and so I... I'm like, okay, well, she's there. I'm going to step up and take the picture and ask my question. So I step up and take the picture ask my question. But before I did, I didn't say anything. But I had one of those moments where I just kind of gave a look that if, if, if a look was worth like 7,000 words, right, you kind of look over like. And I hope she didn't see me. I really do. And it, like, I had to repent afterwards. <laughs> but I walk up, take the picture, and then afterwards a teacher starts apologizing to this mom, thinking that we had cut her off and so I'm walking out just like infuriated back to the car and I get close to the car and I'm like what is wrong with you like I'm having this conversation with myself what is wrong with you <laughs> like is it that big of a deal that you wait for two more minutes for a mom to take a picture with her kid and just kind of swallow that what is wrong with you and God struck me in the back of the head and said you're not living from my love because if you were you'd be a lot more patient right now I'm not doing well at that. How are you? Now listen, you can live for the glory of God and you can live from the love of God. But when you do, it does change the way that you live. It does change it. But how? I'm going to spend the six and a half minutes I got left. I'm on a timer this morning. I'm going to spend the six and a half minutes I got left to kind of press that out a little bit for you. Here's how. Look at what David says in verse 11. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. In other words, he says, God, I don't know the way to live. I don't know what your way is. I know what my way is because I know I, was come hard, I came hardwired with my way, not your way. I came pre-programmed with my way, not your way, God. And your ways are foreign to me, God. I need you to teach me. I need you to show me. Because I don't know how to do that by myself. They're foreign to me. Any of you ever traveled abroad? Right? Been in other countries, other cultures? And usually the further away you get from your, in, in geography, from your home country or culture, the more different that country or culture feels and acts and, and looks and thinks. And I can't think of a further distance than between an infinite God and His finite people. A God who is unlimited in all things and we who are very limited in fact, Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 55, whenever God's speaking to his people, he says, my ways are higher than yours, my thoughts are higher than yours. In other words, there's a difference between my way and your ways. And so what you and I need to do is get on our knees and pray that God would show us his ways. So if you're living for the glory of God, from the love of God, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude, aiming at the glory of God because you see that God's doing something that's much bigger than you, and so you're aiming for that, and you're living off this foundation. Then you get on your knees and say, God, would you teach me your ways? Because I, I don't know them. I didn't come pre-programmed with them. 
And if you're going to pray that prayer, it's a, it's a big prayer. It's a huge prayer. And here's why. Because when you pray that prayer, what often happens is the Holy Spirit comes in and he begins to put the, the, the shovel to the soil of your soul. And he begins to break up fallow ground. You know what fallow ground is in farming? It's unproductive, unplanted, unfruitful property. And the Holy Spirit, in other words, there's, there's, there's whole fields of our lives, perhaps, where we're unproductive and unfruitful. And whenever we pray that prayer, God, would you teach us your ways? The Holy Spirit puts the, the shovel to the soil of our soul, and he turns it over to begin to plant seeds. And if you're going to pray this prayer, what you've got to do is you've got to fire. You've got to fire the inner defense attorney that you have on retainer in your heart. Right? The one that always wants to defend your ways. <laughs> And how you've acted or how you've, how you've engaged. Listen, and the reason I can say that is because I've got a whole law firm on retainer in mind. And they're really good at defending me. <laughs> but you've got to fire that guy or that gal in there. That voice that wants to defend you at every turn. And you've got to say, God, teach me. I want to live for your glory. I want to live from your love. Now would you show me your ways? And what you may find is that the Holy Spirit will come in and he'll begin to turn the soil of your soul and you'll begin to get a, gl get a glimpse of his global mission and a taste of his personal love. And as you do, that you might walk in his truth. In other words, that you might live consistent with how he acts and what he desires. He may turn over the, the soil and the fallow ground of the field of your relationships. Some of you may have lots of fallow ground in your relationships right now. And he may show you that your way of treating people is not God's way. He may help you to see that the bar that you have set for yourself is not the measuring stick for everyone else's value. You ever struggle with that? Maybe he will open your eyes and you begin to treat people differently because whenever what you're living for and what you're living from changes, then how you're living changes. The way you're living changes. And maybe you would begin to see that God is gathering a people for himself and for his glory from among people who are less committed than you are and less talented than you are. And so you would extend grace. Or when you get a glimpse of the global mission of God and a taste of the personal love of God and you begin to pray, God, teach me your ways that I may walk in your truth. The Holy Spirit may turn over the fallow ground in the field of your resources and he may begin to show you that what you have always thought were necessities are actually luxuries. And you see that what he's doing is bigger than you. And so you begin to leverage your time and your finances and things toward kingdom work. Or God may come in and put the soil of the spirit to the, uh, the, the shovel of the spirit to the soil of your soul and turn over the fallow ground of your perceptions. And he begin to show you that your way of seeing people who are different from you is not God's way of seeing people who are different from you. He may begin to show you that, hey, what you, the way you have interacted with people who are different from you is you've run away from them in fear as opposed, towards, as opposed to towards them with affection and love to learn from them. Rather, you lock them out. Maybe God would put the shovel to the soil of your soul and turn over the field of your parenting. Over the field of your parenting and show you that your way of discipling your kids may not be the way that God has intended it's when you begin to parent for the glory of God as a part of his global mission. It means that you might have different goals for your kids than the PTA does. And you begin to instruct and teach them in some of those things. Maybe it begins that you need to begin, you need to, begin to get tough with them in times or be tender with them in times. Listen, if all you've ever done with them is, is shown them as toughness, then what you're probably going to raise is an embittered child. 
But if all you've ever done is show tenderness, you're probably going to raise an entitled one. If all you've ever done is cover for him. Maybe your way of parenting isn't God's. Maybe the conversations with you're having with them need to move and shift just from personal morality to the kind of legacy they want to leave 60, 70, 80 years from now because they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Maybe the Holy Spirit would put the shovel to the soil in the fallow field of your marriage and show you that your way of being a husband or a wife has not been God's way. Maybe as a husband you've been more domineering and dictatorial than you have been a servant, humble, sacrificial leader. Maybe as a wife you've been more manipulative than you have been nurturing and encouraging and affirming. Students, maybe God would put the shovel to the soul of your soul and he would turn over that dirt and show you that your way of responding to your parents is not God's way. Maybe he would begin to show you that the reason that you're having such a rough time right now in your home is because you're living for your glory and you're not aiming at God's. That what you're living for is independence as opposed to obedience. You're not seeing what God has said. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. And you're pushing back against that and pushing back against that and pushing back against that and things get so hard in your home. It's a big prayer, right? you got to fire the defense attorney today and get on your knees with a picture of the glory of God, with a taste of the love of God, so that what you're living for and what you're living from changes and say, God, show me now the way to live. Because our biggest problem is not how. Our biggest problem is what we're living for and what we're living from. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning. Um, we are so prone to live from the foundation of guilt as opposed to gratitude. We are so prone to live for our glory as opposed to yours. So God, I pray that this morning that you would peel our eyes back, the scales that are there to get a glimpse of just how big and mighty and magnificent and glorious you are. That one day, everyone, every nation, tribe, and tongue will surround your throne. And that's what we get to be caught up into. Not just a self-help, kind of fix-yourself kind of religion. But God, that we get to be a part of this global mission that you are on so that no matter how high the peaks are or how deep the valleys become, that we are aiming for your glory because we see that it's bigger than us. But God, may you give us a taste this morning. May your Holy Spirit pour out your love in our hearts with a, for some of us for the first time with a taste of your love in Jesus Christ who has given his life for us. That we would be awed by the expanse of your love. So that we might get on our knees and say, God, I want to live for your glory. I want to live from your love. Would you teach me your ways? And whatever fallow ground you need to break up in my heart, God. And in our hearts, may you do so. With much grace. 
and tender gentleness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.